Catholic History Trek, a podcast exploring the Catholic past. If you ever watch a game of American football, usually in the end zone, you can spot some intrepid Christian holding up a sign which reads, John 3.16. Many realize this is a reference to the third chapter and 16th verse of the Gospel of John, which reads, For God so loved the world as to give his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him may not perish, but have life everlasting. But imagine, if you will, watching that same football game where the Christian just held a sign that simply read, John, no chapter number, no verse number, just John. That sign really wouldn't have the same impact. Someone spotting that sign might wonder, is he holding the sign because his name's John? Is he saying hi to a friend named John? Does he have to go use the John? Is he cheering for a player named John? And if he's referring to the Gospel of John, it's referring to the entire book, particular book, and if so, which part? We often take for granted the books of the Bible are broken down into chapter and verse, but this was not always the case. In fact, Catholics spent a thousand years reading New Testament scriptures that had neither chapters nor verse numberings. Many people have a friend or family member who can talk endlessly and never let you get a word in edgewise. That person who dominates the conversation by continually going on and on and on, with barely a pause to take a breath. For many years, reading the scriptures was much like this friend. The Gospel of John was not divided up into 21 neat chapters, nicely split further into sections, paragraphs, and verses like we have today, with a clear delineation between sections making it much easier to find a particular teaching or event in the life of Jesus. But that changed, thanks in part to the work of Stephen Langton. You may not know his name, but you undoubtedly know the result of his great achievement of dividing the Bible into chapters. And not only did Langton shape the way Christians have been reading the Bible for the past 800 years, he was also a driving force behind the renowned Magna Carta. I'm Scott Schulze, and in this episode of Catholic History Trek, My erudite co-host Kevin Schmeezing is joining me to uncover the life and times of this well-accomplished but little-known Stephen Langton. Stephen Langton was born in England in the latter half of the 12th century. Recognized for his sharp mind, he attended the prestigious University of Paris at an early age and became famed as a great professor of theology and canon law. As a great scholar, Langton was the most voluminous and original commentator on the scriptures from all of England's history, aside from the Venerable Bede. After a quarter century teaching in Paris, Pope Innocent III called Langton to Rome and named him a Cardinal of the Church. At the end of the 12th century, back in Langton's native England, Hubert Walter, the Bishop of Salisbury, was named the Archbishop of Canterbury. This posting was the preeminent position in the Church throughout all of England, and was often a marriage of church and state, as a dozen chancellors of England also served as Canterbury's archbishop. In this era, when bishops ranged on the spectrum from very holy to very political, Archbishop Hubert Walter seems to have landed very strongly on the political side of the scale. He was employed in the household of King Henry II, ruled England as a de facto governor during the reign and absences of King Richard I, known as Richard the Lionheart, which also included the levying of taxes and ordering an execution of one who protested his taxes, and in 1199, 
Walter was appointed Chancellor of England by Richard's successor, King John. As an aside, if you are familiar with the Robin Hood story of a certain Prince John who attempts to steal away Richard the Lionheart's kingdom while the king is away on crusade, this John was the real-life John who that character is based on. Walter served as both Chancellor in England of Archbishop of Canterbury until his death in 1205, when a dispute arose as to who had the right to elect the next Archbishop of Canterbury, which was claimed by both the monks of the cathedral chapter and the bishops of the province. In an attempt to steal the election and secure their right to elect the next Archbishop, several of the monks did not use voting machines or count illicit ballots, but rather quickly elected their sub-prior Reginald to the position and sent him to Rome to be confirmed by Pope Innocent III. King John of England became irate with the monks at Canterbury and lost no time in compelling another election to be held to attempt to make sure his man got the posting, somebody favorable to the king. That man was John de Grey, the Archbishop of Norwich, with whom the king had a close relationship. John de Grey was an advisor to the king and more of a secular ruler than a churchman. And also important, he was quite successful at raising money for the king. On the king's recommendation, John de Grey was elected and a new delegation traveled to Rome seeking the confirmation of the second election. At this point, two men had been selected for the same office, and the monks arrived in Rome with both their sub-prior Reginald and the bishop John de Grey, who both sought to be confirmed by the Pope. Pope Innocent III, who is perhaps one of the greatest popes in the Middle Ages, and who repeatedly shows up in our Catholic History Trek podcasts which cover this era, had to decide between the claims of the rival candidates. The Pope ultimately rejected both elections due to their sketchy nature and requested a new election be held. The Pope sided with the monks over the bishops as to who had the right of election, pointing out that the right of election had belonged to the monks from Saxon times. He directed the monks then in Rome to choose a new archbishop, and the Pope recommended Stephen Langton for the post. The monks elected Langton, who was duly confirmed by the Pope. While the election of Langton provided England with a good man and good leader to head the church in that country, it did not provide the king the result he wanted, of having a political ally and supporter in that seat. Much like fellow Canterbury Archbishops Anselm, who was twice exiled, and Thomas Becket, who was martyred, as covered in our Camino and Canterbury episode, Langton would merit the wrath of the king upon his appointment as archbishop. As Scott indicated, King John saw the affirmation of Langton by the Pope as a rejection of his own authority and fought the outcome tooth and nail. He expelled from England both Langton's father and the monks of the Canterbury Cathedral chapter, those who had initially voted for another candidate, but then accepted the Pope's appointment of Langton. Langton, for his part, was not permitted back into the Kingdom of England from Italy, where he had been consecrated. Pope Innocent III was as intransigent as King John, and so this disagreement ushered in a conflict that would last the next six years. The Pope responded to the expulsions by excommunicating all those involved and threatened to impose an interdict on the nation of England if John did not accept Langton. An interdict is a penal measure imposed by the Pope that prohibits almost all church activities within the area affected. It might be enforced differently depending on local context, but it generally banned all public celebration of sacraments and allowed only private baptisms and last rites. 
John, for his part, continued in defiance. He threatened that he would force into exile and seize the property of all bishops and other clergy who sought to enforce the interdict. In March 1208, no progress being made, the bishops of London, Ely, and Worcester carried out the Pope's orders to close the churches of England. John, true to his word, confiscated their properties and those of all priests who agreed to enforce the interdict. This test of wills dragged on for several years. Finally, in the summer of 1212, the ice began to thaw. John, becoming aware of widespread unrest among the nobility of England, feared rebellion, and this prompted him to begin negotiations with the Pope's representative. In May 1213, John agreed to accept Langton as archbishop. There were still details to be worked out regarding the confiscated church property, but the interdict was finally lifted in 1214, six years after its enactment. One of the causes of John's uneasiness about the security of his rule was the prospect of an alliance between King Philip II of France and Pope Innocent III. If you read older history books in particular, they use the nicknames of these medieval rulers, so King John was John Lackland, or Lackland, because his landed inheritance wasn't expected to be great. He followed his older brother, Richard the Lionhearted, Scott mentioned him earlier, who died in 1199. And then the king of France, Philip II, is known as Philip Augustus because he had grand ambitions and the personality to match. And as Scott also already mentioned, this King John, John Lackland, was the John of the Robin Hood legends, which make him out to be a buffoon. Now, John may not have actually been the figure in the Robin Hood legends, but nonetheless, the nicknames indicate something of the truth. And one can understand, then, why John would have been insecure about the stability of his authority within the Kingdom of England. Now, Philip was no friend of the Pope either, or more accurately, he was an on-again, off-again friend of the Pope, kind of like John. Innocent and Philip had been enmeshed in a years-long dispute over Philip's irregular marital situation, something of a precursor to the situation in England with their own king, Henry VIII, down the road. France and England were in the midst of a centuries-long tussle over territory in northern France. It's a very long, complicated story, but its most famous chapter is surely the Hundred Years' War, which went from the mid-14th to the mid-15th century and involved prominently St. Joan of Arc. But that was really only the last stage of an ongoing conflict that was also happening during the period we're talking about. So Philip of France was looking for chinks in the armor of John of England, and papal animus was one. Therefore... John, for a time, feared that the Pope would ally with France in an invasion of England. Germany, or the Holy Roman Empire, was also an important player in all these machinations, but I'm leaving them out for simplicity's sake. In any event, this threat provided additional incentive for John to settle with the Pope, which he did in 1214. As part of that settlement, he actually swore his fealty to the Pope as the sovereign of his lands, making him a vassal of the Bishop of Rome. This, along with similar developments around the same period, have given rise to the verdict issued by many medieval historians that the papacy of Innocent III marks the apex of papal power in church history. As for poor King John, his troubles weren't over. Although John's newfound friendliness toward the church resulted in Pope Innocent's unwavering loyalty to him from here on out, the nobility of England weren't so satisfied. They had organized rebellion in northern England, renouncing their allegiance to the king and threatening to assail England's principal cities. They demanded that the recognition of rights and limitations on monarchical power that had been granted to the church also be extended to themselves. There was already a tradition of such law in England dating back to the Charter of Liberties under Henry I in the early 12th century. 
The barons wanted a reaffirmation of those liberties. The man chosen by the king to be mediator in this dispute was our guy, Archbishop Stephen Langton, from pariah to the king's right-hand man. You get the sense that King John wasn't the most stable or consistent ruler in history. In June 1215, the leaders of the baronial rebellion met with John in a meadow outside London along the Thames River called Runnymede. Today, that's considered an important site in the history of human rights and the rule of law because of what happened there between the king and his subjects. Under the guidance of Archbishop Langton, the nobles and the king formulated and agreed to a series of declarations that would collectively become known as the Great Charter, or in Latin, Magna Carta. Here's the way it begins. John, by the grace of God, King of England, Lord of Ireland, Duke of Normandy, and Aquitaine, and Count of Anjou, to his archbishops, bishops, abbots, earls, barons, justices, foresters, sheriffs, stewards, servants, and to all his officials and loyal subjects, greeting. Know that before God, for the health of our soul and those of our ancestors and heirs, to the honor of God, the exaltation of the Holy Church, and the better ordering of our kingdom, at the advice of our reverend fathers, Stephen, Archbishop of Canterbury, Primate of all England and Cardinal of the Holy Roman Church, Henry, Archbishop of Dublin, William, Bishop of London, and then there's a long list of bishops and nobles. First, that we have granted to God and by this present charter have confirmed for us and our heirs and perpetuity that the English Church shall be free and shall have its rights undiminished and its liberties unimpaired. This freedom we shall observe ourselves and desire to be observed in good faith by our heirs in perpetuity. To all free men of our kingdom, we have also granted for us and our heirs forever all the liberties written out below to have and to keep for them and their heirs of us and our heirs. The Magna Carta went on to list 62 additional guarantees, such as no arrest without legal reason and approval by peers, standards of weights and measures, no confiscation of land, free commercial activities, and so forth. The Magna Carta is generally viewed to be the foundation for subsequent developments of the rights of individuals versus the arbitrary use of government power, including, not least, the American Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. One aspect of the Magna Carta story needs to be clarified. Some detractors of the Church will claim that the Pope nullified the document, proving the hostility of the Church toward human rights. It is true that Innocent III rejected the Magna Carta, even though his champion, Stephen Langton, was deeply involved. As previously mentioned, Innocent had become a loyal supporter of King John since the resolution of their differences, and Innocent, with some justification, deemed the method by which the Great Charter was devised to be invalid. In effect, that John was forced into the agreement by violent rebellion, which unjustly undermined the legitimate authority of the English sovereign. So again, the complexities of the time. The Pope, who had been trying to curb the king's power for years, now emerges as the greatest defender of the king's prerogatives. Langton's insistence on the opposite position now brought him into a brief conflict with the Pope, who suspended his authority as archbishop. But the Pope did not oppose Magna Carta because he was in favor of absolute monarchy or opposed to individual rights, nor was there any implication of church teaching running in that direction. Emboldened by the Pope's support, King John resisted implementing the Magna Carta and civil strife once again plagued the realm. But Innocent died in July of 1216, and John died a few months later. Stephen Langton, alone among the three principal characters, was still alive and well, and he returned to his See of Canterbury in 1218, and in the 1220s witnessed the successors of Pope and King reaffirming the Magna Carta, bringing the approval of both church and state to this landmark document. 
As Kevin mentioned, Langton returned to England and peacefully held the office of Archbishop of Canterbury for the remaining 10 years of his life, dying in 1228. During this final decade came the great achievement I mentioned at the opening of this episode, his division of the Bible into chapters, which is usually dated to the year 1227, just one year before his death. Although some historians date the work far earlier to the early 1200s, while he was still at the University of Paris. So it's possible one of these is correct, or maybe they're both correct. He may have started it at one point and finished it years later. Regardless, while Langton was not the first to attempt to divide any of the books of the Bible into smaller sections, he was arguably the most successful in this endeavor, based on the widespread adoption of his work which subsequent men built upon to provide us the chapter and verse divisions we are familiar with today. The oldest attempts at dividing books of the Bible into more manageable chunks belong to the books of the Old Testament. We find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they utilized a system to divide individual books into smaller paragraphs called parashat, which were identified by two letters from the Hebrew alphabet for open and closed to indicate when a new line began and a previous paragraph ended. Another system from this time divided the books into sadarim units, which were smaller than parashat, and later on, the Mishnah utilized divisions called pasugim for verses. In some locations, the divisions of the Old Testament were based on usage, such as in Israel, the Torah was divided into 154 sections to be read aloud in weekly worship over a span of three years, while in the Babylonian region, it was divided into about 50 sections to be read over the course of a single year. By the 900s, the Hebrew Old Testament had been divided into various sections and subsections, which were more or less standard, and with the introduction of the printing press, Rabbi Isaac Nathan ben Kalinimus is credited for putting these existing divisions into chapter-verse numbering, which we have today, first appearing in his Bible Concordance from the 1440s. The first recorded attempts to divide the New Testament books date back to the 4th and 5th centuries. The Catholics of the East introduced the Kephalia divisions, which did not split the sections of the book based on length or historic event, but were more like reference points to quickly find a particular section of the book. Another attempt from this time comes from Eusebius of Caesarea, who divided the Gospels into smaller sections. But neither of these early methods of division became widespread, and so Langton's work was somewhat from scratch in regards to the New Testament. Langton's division of the Bible into chapters created divisions that are fairly uniform in length and showed some consideration for placing chapter breaks around theological points and events. His work first showed up in copies of the Latin Vulgate Bible and spread to various medieval translations in other languages. Cardinal Hugh of St. Cher, a Dominican who is a younger contemporary of Langton's, is sometimes also credited for dividing the Bible into chapters but his work can be better described as subdividing each of Langton's chapters into seven parts, denoted by the first seven letters of the alphabet, which was used by old commentators as, as kind of a precursor of dividing down to the individual verses we are familiar with today. A couple centuries later, another Dominican, Santes Pagnino, who is a biblical scholar, divided Langton's chapters into verses. But these verses, which were much longer than today's verses, never really received widespread adaptation. It would be centuries later with the work of a French printer, Robert Estienne, who was also called Robert Stephanus, who divided the chapters into the verses that you and I are familiar with today. His printed Greek New Testament of 1551 
was the first to use these verses whose numbers were printed in the margins. And his 1555 Latin Vulgate was the first Bible to include these verse numbers printed within the text, with the aforementioned Rabbi Nathan's verse divisions used for his Old Testament. And so by the mid-1500s, we finally had a Bible that had Old Testament and New Testament divisions of chapters and verses, which we are all familiar with today. For the past four and a half centuries, Bibles have incorporated these universal divisions of chapters and verses, with only slight variations in verse numbering, usually depending on which copy of the Old Testament translators use. And while we've seen recent innovations for the Bible, such as red-letter editions, electronic versions, and audio Bibles, these versions all employ the chapters and verses devised by Steve Langton and the other contributors to this field. In the old Catholic encyclopedia, W.H. Kent wrote, Although the role of English churchmen has few names more illustrious, Langton's fame is hardly equal to his achievements. His achievements were great indeed, and I hope that Scott and I have given you a taste of them through this episode of Catholic History Trek. As we thought about what prayer to end with, we thought it would be appropriate, considering Langton's contributions to the Bible, to take something out of sacred scripture. And we were also limited by the number of prayers we know in Latin. So the natural choice was the Our Father, or the Pater Noster. The Our Father, by the way, our English version of it, comes from the translation of the King James Bible. Just thought I would squeeze in the name of yet another English monarch. But Scott and I, of course, will be praying it in the Church's ancient language of Latin. Pater Noster, qui es in celis, sanctificetur nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, sicut in celo et in terra. Panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis hodie, et dimitte nobis debita nostra, sicut et nos dimittimus debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed libra nos amalo. Amen. Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at catholichistorytrek at gmail.com.